Good morning. Our scripture is coming out of Numbers chapter 21. We're reading verses 4 through 9. From Mount Ur, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless, worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. So uh, before we get into the word, I'd like to thank uh, the many of you who have uh, given an outpouring of support uh, for our family uh, during the sudden loss of my younger sister's husband uh, to uh, cancer and related complications. It happened in a span of three days. Um, so tomorrow morning I'm going to be leaving early to, to go down and see how I can support them. But, but you guys have been just uh, loving our family. and we, we really do appreciate it. So when I uh, mentioned to a friend that the, uh, the passage that we'd be considering today, um, he paused and he said, that's an interesting uh, passage for a one-off message. And I felt a little defensive. I was like, doesn't seem odd to me. But then when I thought about it, I thought like, well, it could be just a little bit random. I mean, we jumped from Genesis to Numbers and, and what was I thinking? Well, number one, Curtis said I could speak on whatever I wanted to, so, so here it is. Uh, but number two, I, you know, you guys knew I worked with kids for a lot, and uh, this was always one of my favorite Sunday school lessons. Now, if you grew up in church, you probably know this one. If you didn't grow up in church, it may be one of the lesser known ones. Uh, but number three, the real reason behind this is because about a month or so ago, I was reading just in my, my regular reading, and I read this, and I'm like, man, I would like to preach that. And so here, here it is. The more I got into it, the more I realized um, really high stakes uh, this passage is. And we get the sense of how high stakes this passage is because it's referenced in uh, the New Testament and it's used as a negative example. And, and Paul is, is writing to the Corinthians, which is a church with a lot of problems. Um, a really, really helpful church because uh, not perfect people. But he said this, now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. So if first century believers were asked to look at this as an example and they were warned against a number of things, idolatry, evil desires, and worst of all, putting Christ to the test. Um, it makes me want to listen. And as I meditated upon this, I became convinced that even today, my heart tends to complain and at times even skews toward unbelief or apostasy. Now, I think it's worth our time to consider this example. So today we're going to look at um, how we can profit from the story about a bronze snake. Our scripture said from Mount Hor, they set out 
by way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way, and they spoke against God and against Moses, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. So the first way we can profit from this story is to realize something. We can realize that difficult circumstances can expose my unbelief. In a book called Your Reactions Are Showing, J. Allen Peterson likens our reactions, especially during times of adversity, to a teabag. Now, what's true about a teabag is that the hot water brings out what was in the teabag. It does not create what was in the teabag. It simply brings it out. Difficult circumstances are like that. They reveal what is in our hearts. So the text summarizes what was in their hearts with the phrase, the people became impatient on the way. And so the difficulty of hot water circumstances hit them and what came out? Impatience. So unbelief can expose difficult, be exposed by difficult circumstances. Now, it's not hard to, under, to understand, like humanly speaking, why they were feeling that way. Uh, they have been through a lot. Foremost is what we could call this, deferred dreams. Now, today's passage in Numbers 21, obviously a lot happened before that as well. And Numbers records a whole bunch of rebellions. In fact, there are nine rebellions that the people engaged in, plus a few bonus ones from uh, Balaam and even Moses. And so this right here is rebellion number eight of nine, okay? Number eight of nine in a series. So we're getting to the end of these rebellions. And, uh, but it's the consequences of the number four rebellion that the people are really, really struggling with right here. The rebellion number four was when they approached the promised land and they quailed in the face of what they saw there and they said, we don't want to go in. And so God said, you spied out the land for 40 days and you saw that it was good. And so for 40 years, you will wander in the wilderness. And one generation, everybody 20 years and up will die in those next 40 years and the next generation, a new generation, would inherit the promised land. Well, that is bitter, bitter, bitter disappointment. Made even worse from the fact that they were on the very doorstep. They had seen it. Some of them had even tasted of its produce. Proverbs 13 says that hope deferred makes the heart sick. And their hearts were sick. On top of this uh, deferred dream that they had, they'd been thinking about this for years and years and years, was another issue. And uh, we could call this an irksome development, a detour. So you've got deferred dreams and you've got this detour. So it speaks about being at Mount Hor and then having to go around the land of Edom. So what you should picture here, and I probably should have had a map here, is they're sitting on the doorstep of the promised land and they were able to like bivouac at a really, really awesome place if they could just cut across some land. Now this happened to be the land of some relatives Edom, these are the, uh, the people that came from Esau, Jacob's brother. So they were Jacob's descendants. These were Esau's descendants. Now, if you're familiar with scripture, you may be uh, familiar with that whole Jacob stealing the birthright thing. Um, even though Esau did not kill Jacob that day, there were still some pretty hard feelings. And so uh, Edom said, you may not pass through our land. 
Now, this was really attractive because it was called the King's Highway. You can read about it in the chapter before. And so it was going to be a straight path through this land to a really, really great place to bivouac. But however, now they find themselves going away from the promised land all the way around Edom and then coming all the way back up for a place to camp. And so uh, this, is, this was very, very difficult for them, this detour. And, and if, if you guys, I mean, you know how difficult detours can be, right? Uh, I remember one time where we uh, did something that I'm actually going to do pretty soon, where we left, our family left around 4 a.m. to get through D.C. traffic to go south. We wanted to get there before 6.30. I mean, we were going to do this thing. And I put the car on autopilot somehow just, just and ended up on 95 North. I don't even know how I did it. But there is four miles between our exit and the 273 exit. And I tell you what, I was literally white-knuckling that steering wheel, just willing my mouth to be quiet because anything that came out at that point was not going to be good. And that was just like a, a, a simple detour. Well, we can understand what they are feeling as they walk away from the promised land. And in this difficulty, this, this hot water, what comes out? Well, complaining. It says that they complained. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. And here are their words. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Well, complaining is almost a national sport. Would you agree with me on that? Um, and like any sport, it plays by certain rules. And if you want to be a professional complainer, there are some great rules, and they could even teach us how to do it here. Number one, you need to impugn the motives of somebody. All right? And number two, you need to twist some facts. So their words are that God brought us up out of Egypt so that we would die in the wilderness. Now, that's kind of an old charge. They've leveled it against God before. But it's actually really, really far from the truth. He didn't bring them to die in the wilderness. He brought them out to give them rest in the promised land. But, you know, there is kind of a grain of truth in all these things. You know, in, in the best complaining, there's a grain of truth in it. And the grain of truth is that half of them are going to die in the wilderness. So they take that and they say that was God's original intent. So they impugn his motives. Now, what they ignore during this time is God's provision for them. It, it is, is fantastic. Even while they are under these 40 years of judgment, God's care for them does not stop. He continues to provide manna, the, the bread from heaven. He continues to give them water. Moses recounts later that their clothes did not wear out, their shoes did not wear out. And in, in the previous verses, verses one through three of this very same chapter, he gave them total victory over an aggressive enemy. So we see that God's care and provision for them, even during these 40 years, has not abated. But they take his motives and they say, no, you brought us out here to kill us. Now, another rule of great um, complaining is exaggerating. I, I tell you what, this is, this is almost a caricature. You know, they say there's no food and water. Well, except for the, uh, the bread falling from heaven and the water gushing from the rock. Um, and then they say, oh, yeah, and the food that we do have, we loathe. Um, and you're like, wait, you just said you had no food. But, but, but here we are. And, uh, you know, it reminds us sometimes of, of our kids staring at the pantry and going, there's nothing to eat in here. You know, or, or what about our kids? It's, we do that sometimes. There's nothing to eat. 
well, there's a carrot sticks there, you know, but they're not going to do that. Um, yeah, so this is, this is somewhat what universal. Uh, the, what happens here is that we also despise God's provision. And, you know, there is something very human about complaining about diet. It's just something we do. In fact, uh, my, my kids tell me that it's almost a way that you can relate. There's a camaraderie in complaint um, about, say, cafeteria food or something. When they say we loathe this worthless food, they say, another way you could say that is this is miserable food. A really, really a strong attack. Now, this food that they're talking about is what Psalm 78 calls grain from heaven and the bread of angels. Well, you can read a lot about what exactly manna is, but whatever it is, it's the bread of angels. I heard somebody say it probably tasted like a Krispy Kreme donut. Hot and ready. Even those could get old. But, but they looked at it and they just said, the bread of angels is miserable. It's disgusting. Well, the thing is about complaining, behind the thing itself is the hand of God. And when you strip away the thing itself, you find out that you're complaining against God. As I thought about this, I realized that much of my complaining happens when, when I think that I am being done wrong. I uh, think that I am owed something, and when that doesn't take place, I feel like complaining. I think that almost everyone here, at least this is true for me, we, we construct this kind of this fictitious life, this promised land, like my ideal life would be this. And when that doesn't happen, when a dream is deferred, when that promotion doesn't happen or that girl or guy that seemed to be the one walks away or the American dream doesn't materialize, you know, all of these different things that we say, if my life was ideal, it would look like this, don't happen, then we feel like that is owed to us. And so we have this fictitious life and we're going to try our dead level best to live into it. And when it doesn't happen, we set off on what feels like a really tedious detour. And guys, I think much of our life is lived as a detour. It feels like that. I'm here. I don't want to be here. The further away we get from that dream of rest and peace that we created, the more agitated we get. The truth is, none of us are in the promised land yet. And so the promised land is a picture of the rest that God is going to give us someday. And we are living right now battling our flesh and battling a fallen world, and none of us are in the promised land yet. Every one of us are in the wilderness. One of the truths that we find in Scripture is that there is no transformation without the wilderness. And the fact is, even though we are not in the promised land yet, although we are groaning in what feels like a wilderness with deferred hopes and detours, God is still with us. Just like there, his provision has not stopped. His care has not stopped. His presence is with us. That song that we just sung, in his presence, I am free. Where he is. Uh, beautiful. No, there was another choice for this first generation. Sometimes we think like this generation that was destined to die in the wilderness, like, you know, hey, that's it, guys, suicide. But think about it, 40 years. You know, if you were 60 years old, you lived to a, a ripe 100. There were so many choices that they could have made. They didn't have to rebel. 
the ones that died in the wilderness could have had like a, almost a full natural life. There were birthdays and anniversaries and festivals that all could have been done in the wilderness. So I think one of the ways that we can profit from this story about a bronze snake is to realize that difficult circumstances can expose my unbelief. A second way that we can profit is to acknowledge something. Acknowledge that God is just and he must deal with my rebellion. Now, divine judgment is um, an uncomfortable subject, but we're faced with it here. I want to like give kind of like a proceed with caution here. So number one, we're talking about God. So if we could figure out God, he would not be God. He has all the wisdom He has all the power, and he is what theologians would call inscrutable. You can look and look, and you will not figure everything out. So we are on a little bit shaky ground when we start trying to figure out why God does something. Another thing to remember is that he's God and we're not. So it's really arrogant to assume that we know that a punishment is happening to us or a punishment is being assigned to someone else. Just don't go there. Just don't put yourself on God's bench A few ways to think about what we see here in this passage as we consider divine judgment is one one thing is that we're all living under the fall. So in a sense, every single person on this earth is under judgment. So Curtis has been going through Genesis. And so we saw in Genesis chapter two and three, the fall. So as far as I can tell, the ground is still yielding thorns. Childbirth is still painful. There's still a power struggle between men and women, and we're all dying. So in a sense, every single person is under judgment, generally. But not everyone is under judgment in a specific way. Not all difficulty is judgment. Jesus' disciples made the mistake of assuming that a man who was born blind had done something to earn it, or maybe his parents did, and Jesus quickly disabused them of that. He said, this is neither of them sinned but this is for the glory of God. I found it interesting as I just thought about divine judgment, sometimes even snake bites. So we got snake bites in this passage, not even snake bite is sin. Um, In Acts chapter 28, there's one of these colorful stories um, where the apostle Paul on his missionary journey survives a shipwreck, builds a fire and gets bit by a viper. And the natives are watching this and they they don't know God. And they say, this man must be a murderer because like, you know, like he escaped the sea, but, you know, divine judgment came, but he shook it off with no harm. So here we see that even something that would look like the divine judgment of God may not indeed be the divine judgment of God. Um, But what we need to keep in mind, so with those disclaimers aside, how God operates with judgment is that those who walk in the covenant with him will not be allowed to walk in sin. We see a couple examples in this right here for Israel. Israel was in a covenant, an agreement with God, a solemn agreement with God. They were in a covenant with God because they were Abraham's offspring. So God said, by your name, your offspring will be named. And so they were in a covenant with God by nature of being Abraham's children. They were also had experienced the Old Testament salvation event, which was the Exodus. And so there's all kinds of picture where Egypt is like the place of bondage and slavery and God takes them out. But the the most amazing part of that event was when he takes them across the Red Sea. And as they come out of that, it says that they believed in God 
and his servant Moses, and they were saved. So this is a picture of the salvation event of the Old Testament. And these people, you could say, were in the covenant and they were saved. Now, whether or not they're going to remain in the covenant can be determined by their response to chastening. Those who repented and looked were saved, but those who did not had their lives shortened. Unbelief is marked by a refusal to acknowledge that God has the right to judge or to even access the means he provides. This holds true today. There are those who do not acknowledge God and they don't acknowledge his right to judge and they will continue to walk into eternity in that condition. Another example of how God doesn't allow people who are in the covenant to walk in sin is is the first century believers. So does this pattern of God not allowing people who follow him to keep walking in sin, does that carry through to the New Testament? And we have to say that it does. At the beginning, I read some verses from uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And, uh, and so here, God is actually warning believers not to go into idolatry and test Christ. But the very following chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, um, we have some believers that are eating and drinking unworthily of the Lord's table. And Paul says, some of you are sick and some have even died. But I want us to draw our attention to the verses following that account there that shows a little bit about what is God doing when he judges people who follow him. 1 Corinthians 11 says, but if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. So you see this, we're supposed to be self-disciplining. In other words, we respond to God's word, we respond to his revelation, we are self-disciplining. But if we do not, but when we are judged by the Lord, We're disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So did you catch that? Through discipline, God is actually preserving our lives so that we will not be condemned by those who march into eternity not recognizing God. Something Curtis said a few weeks ago caught my attention. He said that love is not letting us get comfortable with sin. That is why God judges So I conclude that correction is possible for me. And it may even map to some of the categories that we see in numbers. There are a couple of different ways that God judges in those eight or nine rebellions. One of them is a loss of divine empowerment. And so in that instance, they said, we're gonna go and fight this enemy. He said, don't do it. And they did, and they got beat. What we see there is the loss of divine empowerment. So sometimes in, in our lives, we can say, wow, God's hand does not seem to be on what I'm doing. There are other times where uh, you can kind of connect the sin, like for instance, relationships are breaking down, or perhaps your body is breaking down from some unwise behaviors and, and actions that you've taken in the past, or unwise decisions reap poor results. But I don't want us to get paranoid. The, the passage here provides what may be considered, you could call it like a checkup. So if you're wondering like, hey, am I, is God, like, is he correcting me right now? Well, I think you actually need to just look at the passage that we are considering and ask yourself a few questions. So one question would be, is like Israel, am I despising the providence of God? Am I ungrateful? Do I consume everything my way thinking that is owed to me and I never say, God, thank you for this gift? So are you recognizing his providence or are you just like saying, no, I'm owed this? Um, Another question you could ask yourself, are you impatient with God's plan? 
Are you digging in? Are you saying, God, I know what you're trying to do here, and I'm not going with it? Well, that may be a sign that God is resisting you. Uh, do I impugn the motives of God? Do I declare, God, I don't think you're for me. I think you're against me. I think you're intent on destroying me, even in the face of evidence that he is providing for you and caring for you and being with you. So if your answer to those questions is, no, that's, that's not my stance toward God, well, that's, that's a good checkup. This is a good place to be. Now, if your answer is, yes, I, I am, like, I, I'm not sure about God's right. I'm not sure about his existence. I'm not sure if he is up to good in my life. If that is, that is where you're at right now, there's actually, there's some hope here. And so another way that we can profit from this is by taking heart. The healing is available when I repent and access the mercy through the means he provides. Healing is available when I repent. This is what it looks like for the people. And the people came to Moses and said, we've sinned, for we've spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he takes away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Now, I tend to wonder if they were just terrified of snakes, because who isn't? And whether they were truly sorry, but apparently they were, because God took it as true repentance. It's very helpful here to note some of the elements of repentance. Number one is acknowledgement. They said, we have sinned. That's a great place to start. If you're even apologizing to someone to say, I'm sorry, I did wrong, or I hurt you. Like that is a great place to start in repentance. Also being specific about what it was. They said, for we have spoken against God and against Moses. And that's exactly the charge that um, had been leveled against them before. It says they spoke against God and Moses. They said, we have spoken against God and against Moses. So it's agreeing with God about what his word says. And then finally, they said, pray for us. They're reaching out. Now, this is not a teaching that we have to go to a mediator to approach God. This was the setup that they had at that time. But those three elements, acknowledging it, being specific about it, and then reaching out is a great place to begin to repent. When we reach out in repentance, God gives us mercy through the means that he provides. And in this case, it is through a fiery serpent on a pole. And whoever sees it and looks at it and is bitten will live. Now, God through the ages has used healing in different ways. So sometimes the, the response of faith is going to be in different ways. Here, he uses a, a snake. Now, nowhere in scripture is a snake a good thing. The snake is a symbol of evil. I think what God is doing here is he is actually giving us another hint on the way to salvation. So, so he's looking back to the garden and saying, remember the enemy? Remember Satan? Remember that serpent? Remember how I said I was going to crush his head? Well, he is still the enemy, and he is at work right here and right now. And so he's reminding the people of both the forces that are at work and his promises to crush that serpent. The people also had transformed something good and beautiful. They had taken manna and said, this is disgusting. And so God took something that we have a visceral reaction against, a snake, and he said, I want you to look at this. It is going to become a means of grace to you. And so he took something that was awful, a symbol of evil, and he used it uh, to show his power to heal. 
I think he also did this for us and for their generations. It was a powerful physical and symbolic lesson to these people. Why did, why did God allow people to get bit and then be healed? Well, I think that it would provide a very, very powerful lesson. I mean, not just for the kids in Sunday school as we teach this lesson, but you think about this. You have a man in the first generation who is going to pass away in the wilderness, who may be ending the end of his life, and he calls his children, his grandchildren to him and say, you will enter the promised land. And then he shows them those two little holes and says, trust God. Do not turn away in unbelief. What a powerful witness to those people. It may have even been people who did enter into the promised land. They were in that second generation. And as they were getting ready to go and to take the fight to the promised land and take over it, they could look down at a scar on themselves and say, God has the power of life in his hand. And it was a visible reminder of God's power and provision. But I think he also did this to teach us how he works in salvation. In the cross, we have another example of God doing something very unexpected. You wouldn't expect him to take the symbol of evil and say, look at this. We wouldn't expect him to take something as awful and gruesome as a cross and make it a symbol of salvation. As one commentator said, men and women dying in sin are saved by the dead body of a man suspended on a cross. It's not expected, but it is where our salvation lies. How do we respond? No matter how God has like communicated his salvation, you always respond by faith. God has dealt with healing in various ways through history. Um, in Leviticus 14, there's a ceremony in which a person who has a horrible skin disease, leprosy, um, is healed. And it involves two birds. One of those birds would be killed and his blood would be sprinkled on that person the other bird would be released. And so for those people in that time, healing looked like this, touch. The person, in order to be healed, to be clean from this, had to go to the priest, and it involved something very, very visual where the, the blood had to be sprinkled upon them for them to be declared clean from this horrible disease. And so in that time, touch and be clean. In our passage today, several times it says, if you look at the snake, they will live. In verse 9 it says, look at the bronze serpent and live. And so for the people in that time, salvation meant looking and living. In John 3.15, Jesus said, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So whether it is like touch and be clean, look at this snake and live, or whether it's believe, look with the gaze of the heart at Jesus and believe and you will have eternal life. I hope you'll profit from the story about a bronze snake. There are deferred dreams and a life that I think probably all of us have at some point, you're probably in it right now, that seems like a detour and that just may resonate deeply with you where you're like, yeah, that is where I live. Well, for one thing, I want you to know you're not alone. This is the universal condition 
between everyone on this side of the promised land. For another thing, I want you to be aware of what the people forgot. Even if you're in this detour, even if your dreams are deferred, God's care for you has not ceased in the same way that he continued to give food and water and provision to those people who were actually under the consequences of their rebellion. He continued to do that. Uh, They had plenty of time to live still in those circumstances. In other words, they were all right. God was going to take care of them and he will take care of me. Please understand that the temptation to speak against the Lord may be very strong, but that is the way of rebellion. And the only way that you will receive the consequences of that is if you refuse to look at him for salvation. And finally, no matter where you find yourself, even if you're suffering the consequences of sin, you may be suffering the consequences of sin that wasn't your own. It may be generational sin that was passed down and is affecting you even today. That may be your situation. No matter what the situation you find yourself in, healing is always found in a daily life of repentance and always part of receiving God's mercy, looking at him on a daily basis. And this is demonstrated above all by believing in the Lord and having eternal life. And so I ask you today, no matter where you find yourself, look and live, believe, and have eternal life. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for powerful stories. Thank you for recording this. Lord, we ask now, we ask now that for the person who is having their dreams put on hold, I pray now that they would realize that you are with them today. I pray for every one of us that have the scars of sin, that we, would, that we would not despair, that we would realize that this is part of the story, or that you will heal and you will use it in our lives. So Lord, I ask now that if there's any today who have found themselves resisting, digging in, I ask that today would be the day that they turn, that they look with a gaze of faith, that they would have eternal life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.